beginning to end, and we're excited about that. We're going to cover every book of the Bible, just about, uh, each Sunday uh, in uh, one year from uh, Generations to Revolutions. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to cover it all, and we're excited about that. What we're doing uh, and what we've done the last couple of weeks is kind of lay the the foundation, and we're trying to pack our bags and kind of get ready uh, for the trip by, by looking at our roadmap, the Bible. How many a couple of weeks ago saw that partial eclipse? Uh, just, uh, we, I think we saw about 60% of it. I know there were a couple of people in our church that, uh, in fact, one family, I think the Horries went all the way to Missouri to see the full eclipse, and that's awesome. My, my son-in-law flew all the way up to Oregon and uh, spent the weekend up there uh, looking at it. And I didn't get a pair of one of those uh, special eclipse uh, sunglasses. I didn't want to look directly into the sun and scorch my retinas, which would be a bad thing. And so I did the next best thing. I uh, remembered that several years ago, somebody had told me that the way you look at the eclipse is basically you make a pinhole in a piece of paper, and uh, basically it'll project perfectly the image of the sun along with the eclipse on the ground or on another surface. And I... During the eclipse, I showed my wife that, and she got so excited, and she called up my son Daniel and said, hey, show the grandkids. They're going to get excited, and and he was astonished. He was amazed that it worked, and all the grandkids jumped up and down. They saw this eclipse, and Daniel, who is a a new professor of philosophy at NYU, basically had never heard of such a simple trick, and so I had the smug satisfaction of finally being able to tell my son something he didn't know, and that was great. But you know, there is uh, much more to a total solar eclipse, and we didn't experience that this time around, but there's something more than just simply everything getting dark for a couple of minutes. In that brief interval of time, the world around us looks very different. Uh, If you're in the middle of a total eclipse, evidently the temperature will actually drop a little bit. Uh, A slight breeze uh, actually is stirred up. Uh, Birds start to chirp kind of excitedly. Uh, flowers will actually start to close, and for a brief moment, you'll actually see some of the brighter stars and planets in the sky. It's uh, really the only time, and maybe the first time in your life, that you're actually going to be able to look straight at the sun without one of those special glasses. Now, you can see just the corona, but still you're seeing a, 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 an image there of what's in the sky. And people travel hundreds, even thousands of miles, and wait years for such a profound experience. In fact, this past week, I, I read that uh, some, uh, when they see it, they're, 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 they're absolutely dumbfounded. Some people cry out. Some people fall on their knees and start praying. It's such a powerful, powerful thing. And uh, they find their faces awash with tears of, of, of joy. And uh, I really believe that God's Word, the Bible, uh, does the same thing for us. Not by eclipsing the, the, the radiance or brilliance of the glory of God, but, but, but by revealing Him in a way that we could never otherwise fully see or know. Exodus 33.20 is an interesting verse. It says, No man can see God and live. What does that mean? That means no person can fully comprehend, fully see the, the full majesty and the glory and the radiance of God and, and fully get it. Uh, and, and really actually in the Old Testament and live. In fact, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 tells us he dwells in unapproachable light. It is in and through and around the revealed word that we can now look directly up at the radiance and glory of God without being blinded by the totality of all that he is in all of his majesty and in all of his glory. Uh, Pastor Stephen last week did a great job sharing with us a little bit about what the Bible is all about. And, and there's nothing better, he writes, or he said in that sermon 
Uh, nothing better than getting a glimpse of the mind of God through His revealed Word. In fact, there's nothing better, he pointed out, than saturating your life, basically, in Him and the revealed Word that He has given to us. Now, when you walk into a dark room, what is the first thing that you do? Uh, the first thing I do when I go into a dark room is I basically run my hand along the wall to find the light switch. I want the room illuminated so that I save my precious little toe from being stubbed. Well, we are designed basically to illuminate or basically to have that kind of experience with God's Word. That it might illuminate our heart and our life. God wants to illuminate uh, His Word to us so that we understand a little bit more about who He is and what He has designed for us, and, and what the Bible really means, and how His truth really fits into our lives. How does it make, how is it applicable to, to where we are today? He wants us to show the light switch, uh, so to speak, of His Word that might illuminate our heart and life. What does that look like? I don't know about you, but uh, I've noticed that it doesn't happen every time I read the Bible or every time I hear God's Word. Sometimes I get a lot of illumination. I'll read God's Word, and sometimes the, the words just pop up. They'll nail me between the eyes and speak to my heart, and I get a whole bunch of light of God's truth that just speaks to me personally. But other times, sometimes I feel like I'm in a dark room. Now, why? What's the difference? Why is it that some people are able to understand the Bible more than others? Are they smarter? Are some Christians smarter than others? No. Uh, is it because they went to Bible college? No. The illumination of God's Word has to do with certain inner qualities. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. It's not automatic, but it is a result of the choices that you and I can make. In fact, there are two major uh, choices that every single one of us can make that will lead to a life-changing, transforming illumination of God's Word to our heart and life. Listen, in this dark and dying world, we desperately need the light of God's truth to speak to us as to what uh, it's all about, what God is doing, and what He is uh, accomplishing in and through us. Let's define that word illumination just for a minute. Illumination is the supernatural influence or ministry of the Holy Spirit, which enables all who believe in Christ to understand the Scriptures. Spiritual truth can only really be perceived by God's Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible tells us that God is light, and He promises to give us light. We desperately need light. The psalmist declares in Psalm 18, 20, 28, Lord, you have brought light in my life. My God, you light up my darkness. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And with his revelation and by his inspiration, God has sent light into our world through his revealed word and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who describes himself as the light of the world. And it is through illumination that the blinders of our eyes are taken off and we really see uh, really the light that's always there. Two things, two choices, two inner qualities, basically, that are absolutely necessary if you want to experience the illumination of God's Word, if you want to hear God's voice speak to you through His Word. First and foremost, number one, we are to love God's Word deeply. We are to love God's Word deeply, have a passion for it. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In Psalm 119, 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, yes, even above fine gold. 
Proverbs 2, 3, and 6. It's a great promise. I love this. If you cry for discernment, how many of you need discernment? I need discernment. I need more wisdom. If you, if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He is the source. I want you to notice here the huge value that's placed on God's word. Illumination starts with God. He's the one that flips on the switch. But if I'm never going uh, to see that light if I don't value the word of God enough to pick it up and to read it and to study it and to apply it to my life. I love the word pictures here. Gold, silver, hidden treasure. All tell us how valuable God's word truly is. Listen, you don't find gold and silver just lying around on the ground somewhere. Some of you, you're going to have to dig for it. It's going to require some effort. You have to search it out. You have to dig it up. In his word is where we find the hope that we need, the power to love, and the faith that we desperately have to have if we're ever going to survive. How many of you want more faith in your life? Where does faith come from? Uh, Hebrew, or, uh, Romans tells us faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. If we're going to grow in our faith, we need to know and understand and apply God's word to our hearts and lives. But... Um, Again, if you uh, don't open the Bible, if you don't read it, if you don't digest it, uh, it it's, it's a waste of time. You're never going to grow. You see, understanding doesn't always come immediately. It takes some thought. It takes some prayer. In fact, God's Word tells us to meditate on God's truth. Now, when we hear that word meditation, I think oftentimes we think of a person sitting on a floor with his or her, her legs tied up like a pretzel and thinking about what it means to be purple. Uh, that is not God's meditation. That's not what biblical meditation is all about at all. To meditate is, about, is thinking about something over and over again, letting it percolate, letting it settle down deep into the inner recesses of who you are. It's like a cow chewing its cud. And I've used this illustration before, and it's kind of gross, but if you ever watch a cow, it, chews, it, it eats grass and it chews it. And then it swallows it into one stomach, and then it regurgitates it back up, and it chews it some more, and it kind of turns into a white, pasty kind of thing. They chew it for, for, for sometimes an hour until finally it's fully, fully digested. Well, that's what meditation is. It's, it's chewing on God's Word over and over again until it becomes fully and totally digested. God spoke to Joshua, and he said this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. <laughs> you're going to chew on it. You're going to dwell on it. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Why? So that you're, you, uh, basically you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. I want prosperity. I want success. Not financial, not the kind of success that this world offers. I want the kind of success and prosperity that God promises to me, uh, spiritually speaking. Meditation is not an option. Uh, basically, meditating on God's law, allowing it to dominate our thoughts, gives us the strength to live according to its principles. But if you don't love this book, if you don't have a passion for it, basically, uh, you won't bother opening it up. You won't bother reading it. You won't bo bother studying it. You'll never really understand or grow as a child of God. So how do you deepen your love for God? How do you deepen your love for His Word? 
First and foremost, we have to understand basically what the Bible does for us, how it changes us, how it transforms us, uh, as we really get into it and read it and study and apply it to our lives. I really want to hear God's voice. God always speaks clearly. We don't always listen clearly. How do we hear His voice more clearly? Uh, the power of God's Word is described for us in the Bible in four different ways. First and foremost, the Bible is described as seed. 1 Peter 1.23 states that you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. If a farmer plants corn seed, uh, basically, uh, what's, what's he going to get? He's going to get corn. If he plants wheat seed, what is he going to get? He's going to get wheat. Watermelon seed, watermelon. This verse talks about two different kinds of seed, that which is perishable and that which is imperishable. If you plant perishable seed, what kind of crop are you going to get? You're going to get that which is something that perishes. It doesn't last very long. If you plant imperishable seed, what are you going to get? You're going to get something that doesn't fade away. It lasts forever. And I think one of the reasons why you and I face so many struggles is that we expect perishable seeds to give us an imperishable crop. For example, we want joy in this life. That's imperishable. But we plant a perishable uh, a seed of, of, say, happy circumstances and basically fun experiences. And so we get a crop of happiness, but it doesn't last. It fades with time quickly, in fact. You can't grow imperishable joy with the seeds of perishable happiness. And what we discover here in the pages of Scripture is a huge difference between happiness and joy. Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, does following Jesus make you happy? Basically, are you supposed to be happy as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Not necessarily. I remember a couple of years, several years ago, a man came up after the service and asked, or basically told me that he was divorcing his wife. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that. What a tragedy. And he said, no, not really. He said, you know, uh, after all, God wants me to be happy, right? I said, no. <laughs> to be honest, uh, God wants you to be holy. I think most people today are surprised to learn that God is not so primarily interested in your happiness as he is in your holiness. He wants you to be consecrated, set apart for his purposes, and following a different set of standards than basically what this world has to offer. And when you do that, what happens? You're shocked and you're surprised and to discover there's a very real and dynamic experience that you go through. It's not necessarily happiness. It's far deeper. It's an abiding, deep-seated joy. You know, uh, it's interesting, the difference between joy and happiness. Uh, happiness has to do with happenings in our life. It has to do with circumstances. For example, the, the happenings of going to Disneyland and experiencing a, a ride makes you happy. It's the happiest place on earth, right? Uh, run by a rat. Uh, but it's temporary. <laughs> a, a Disney ride makes you happy for a few moments, and then when you get off of it, you're miserable because you go, have to go stand in line for two hours for the next ride. Then there's the happiness, the happiness that comes from happenings like, like having a baby or having a party or, or making love. All those kind of things make you happy, but they're temporary. They don't last long. They're short-lived. They're based upon your circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is a whole different animal. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about happiness, but the Bible has a lot to say about joy. What's the difference? Happiness is on the surface. Joy is what runs deep. Joy has to do with that deep-seated peace, that deep-seated contentment. It, it, it basically has, has more to do with the idea of shalom, 
Shalom is that deep down in your heart, uh, absolute assurance, full confidence, blessed hope, abiding peace, down in the inner recesses of who you really are. And it doesn't change when it comes to circumstances or happenings. It's something that God gives you down deep inside. How's your joy this morning? Seriously, how's your joy? Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, we're talking about his word, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. He adds in John 10, 10, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. What does that mean? <laughs> more joy-filled. That's joy. You see, joy remains, again, in your heart and life, regardless uh, of your circumstances, regardless of the ups and downs uh, of happiness. Let's face it, we all have sorrow. We all have suffering. We all go through trials. We all go through troubles. We go through, all go through problems and pains. But it is in and through and by the Holy Spirit that God gives us a joy, a down deep in your heart, contentment and peace and hope. The psalmist reminds us, weeping may last for the night, but a joy a shout of joy comes in the morning. Why is that? Because, again, joy is not based upon ups and downs. It's not based upon our happenings. It's not based upon our circumstances. Where does it come from? Where does that joy come from? God's word is the seed, basically, for the imperishable things that we all desperately need and want. If you want a crop of true joy, plant God's word. If you want a crop of real hope, plant God's word. If you want a crop of genuine peace, plant in your heart and life God's word. A harvest of inner fulfillment is what we need. We don't need more money. We don't need more power and more prestige. We need that deep-seated, uh, true joy, real hope, and genuine peace. And it only comes from God's truth. And we discover that in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We cannot get that genuine secur security or peace from any kind of seed that this world has to offer. It only comes through God's word. The power of God's word is described not only as seed, but secondly as food. What food is to the body, the word of God is to our soul. Ephesians 6.17 tells us, actually, let me back it up. Uh, before I go to food, let me, let me the, the second one is actually uh, a sword. The power of God's word is described not only as a seed, we're going to talk about food in a minute, but it's also described as a sword. Uh, Ephesians 6.17 tells us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I love Hebrews uh, 4.12. For the Word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does it mean when it says the dividing of soul and spirit? Basically, that's the place where what I want the soul, and what God wants, the spirit, clash. And that's our greatest battlefield, isn't it? Between what I want and what God wants. I want you to notice here, in Ephesians, the sword is in our hand. We use it to defend against our enemy. In the book of Hebrews, the sword is in God's hand, and it penetrates and deeply impacts our own life. That's what God's word does for us. God's word, first of all, it, it defends against spiritual enemies. You know, when, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by the enemy, uh, what did he do? He didn't go to some self-help book. He didn't call up Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil or Oprah. He used the Bible. He used the Bible as a sword against the attack of the enemy, and so should we. Jesus knew the Word of God had the power to defend him from temptation. 
But God's word also is a sword that is used on us. Have you ever had God's word cut you to the heart? Many times. Uh, regularly, I, I, I feel it. You've gone to the Bible and it slices you in a way that nothing else does as far as open up your heart. You might have uh, been able to fool other people and maybe even yourself, but the Word of God has a way of exposing and showing the truth about your motives and about your sin. And it hurts, doesn't it? For example, the other day I was about to share a political joke with somebody and I, I kind of caught myself not to say it. It wasn't a dirty joke or anything like that. It was just an off... Well, it wasn't even off color, it was just, but that verse came to my mind. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. And again, it wasn't dirty, it was just an unwholesome thing. And so I, I basically had God's word, and maybe God speaking to me through the word by saying, Brad, sh shut up, <laughs> you know, don't, don't go there. God's word was piercing. Uh, you know, I'm driving down the freeway and some guy cuts me off and my blood begins to boil. And, and I start thinking things about this this person. And, and basically, I think of that Bible, that verse that says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so why did I memorize that verse? But it stopped me short. And so I prayed for that guy. God, sick him. No. <laughs> you see, the Bible's not some dry, dusty, dead book written 2,000 years ago. By God's Spirit is living. It is active. And by God's Spirit is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. When God uses his sword in us, listen, it's not like uh, an enemy that's trying to destroy us. He uses the sword as a surgeon in order to heal us and to cut out that spiritual cancer that might destroy you. And so the word of God is seed. The word of God is a sword. And thirdly, as I mentioned before, God's word is like food. It is food. What food is to the body, the word of God is to our soul. I love the prophet Jeremiah. He states this, Your word was found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, 4, Man shall not live by, on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes, long, desire deeply, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. By it we grow. What food is to the body? The word of God is to our soul. And so anytime the word is preached or taught or read or studied, we are fed. You are fed spiritually. And so many Christians today are suffering malnutrition because a lot of churches today are not teaching God's Word. A lot of Christians today are, are starving to death spiritually because they're not feeding themselves God's Word. I had someone one time come up and say, you know, I don't feel like lately I'm being fed. I'm just not being fed. And I said, well, you know, the only people I know that, aren't, that, need, to, uh, that, that need someone to feed them is, is a baby. So grow up and feed yourself. <laughs> Dig into God's Word. It is food to the soul. Here's a great truth. The more you drink, the more you digest God's word by learning and living it out, the stronger you're going to become and the greater capacity you'll have for understanding it. The word of God is described as seed. It's described as a sword. It's described as food. And fourthly, it is described as a fire and hammer. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters a rock? 
You know, uh, the joy that comes from God's word is not always an easy joy. Sometimes God's word is like a fire. It refines me. And that process burns out the impurities. And that hurts. That's painful at times, but it's a good thing. It's a good pain. Someone once told me as a pastor, my job description is to basically comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Well, that's what God's word does. It basically comforts the afflicted. Deflicted and, and it afflicts those who are comfortable. And listen, we are all way too comfortable. But that's what God's word does. Sometimes it's like a fire. Sometimes it's like a hammer. Back when I was a youth pastor, uh, years ago, I had a very close friend of mine who just deeply wronged me, just deeply offended me. I couldn't get over it. i got to be honest. Months went by, and I, I couldn't let it go. And it took about two years of God working in my heart through his word, basically burning out my bitterness and pounding out my pride before I finally came to a place where I could forgive this guy and love him. But that's God's word at work as a fire and as a hammer. Why would God use a hammer on us? Because we have hard hearts. <laughs> I got a hard heart. And he loves us too much to let us get away with the things that he knows will destroy us. Finally, God's word is like a mirror. James 1.23, a familiar passage. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. How many of you have looked in the mirror at least once this morning? Uh, of course you have. If you haven't, you always run the risk of maybe having uh, walking all day with a piece of breakfast in your teeth or something. But basically, God's word shows us the spiritual truth about ourselves. But it cannot show us if we don't look. God's word is a mirror. It's amazing how even a quick look at God's word will often, re often reveal the truth about some attitude or some action that we might be struggling with. It's amazing. I think too often we look at other mirrors rather than the perfect mirror of God's word. For some, it's the mirror of other people's opinion. They think of themselves or they see themselves in light of what other people think. For some people, the, the, the mirror might be their family, what their parents think about them or their kids or their... Or maybe the mirror of our culture. What does our culture think of me? And we start seeing that kind of a reflection. But just like the, 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 the funhouse mirrors, it's really a distortion of our reflection of who we really are. God's word is a perfect mirror. It reflects perfectly who we are in Christ, what God has done for us, that we are children of God, loved deeply by him, set apart for his purposes. And so the first thing that, that is absolutely necessary in order for us to have the illumination of God's word is to love God's word deeply. Let me encourage you, especially this next year, as we go through the word of God uh, from beginning to end in one 12-month period, let me encourage you to just cultivate and nurture that love and passion for God's word by understanding what it will do for you. It is a powerful, powerful work that God wants to do in and through us by his word, his truth. Secondly, we are not only to, uh, to, to, to love God's word deeply, we are to apply God's word personally. The Bible is not a textbook just to be studied. It is a letter of love to be applied. And I've often said there are a lot of people who will miss heaven by 12 inches. That's the distance between their head and their heart. They might have a head knowledge. They might know about God. They might know about the Bible. But they haven't ever applied it to their heart and their life. They've never been transformed. They've never been changed into the very image of Christ. 
God wants not only to change our thinking, but he wants to transform our hearts. In fact, he wants to give us a new heart. 2 Timothy 2.15 instructs us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How do you and I, you and I handle accurately the word of truth? How do we do it? By basically making it personal, applying it to yourself. The Bible is such a precious and valuable book. It is uh, God's special letter of love to us. It is God's instruction manual for his people. And unfortunately, there's too much of a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm to even read and study it. Why is that? I think most people don't really understand the Bible. They don't see how in the world God can speak to him through this book, but he does. And the tragic result is often there's a lack of spiritual growth, a lack of joy, a lack of faith. There may be a number of different reasons for that, but I think oftentimes it's because uh, Christians don't follow a, a couple simple steps to really hear God's voice when they get into God's Word. Let me just offer you three steps this morning. They've, they've helped me personally to listen more clearly, to hear God's voice as He speaks to me by His Spirit through the Word, and, uh, and how I've responded personally to God through that. Uh, first of all, number one, stop. S-T-O-P. Realize, first and foremost, S-T-O-P. Spiritual truth can only be perceived by the Spirit of God. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 13, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you basically unto all truth. And so before I even crack open the Bible, before I even read a word, first and foremost, I come before God and I make sure that I'm not grieved or quenched God's Spirit. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin I haven't dealt with, some bad attitude I haven't worked through and I haven't brought it before God. And so I'll say, Lord, you know what? Thank you that you've forgiven me. I confess this as sin. I want your spirit to fill me and use me and speak to me as I get into your word. And so first and foremost, I need to stop. Wait. God, speak to my heart. I'm ready. Number two, slow down. <laughs> Take a deep breath. I mean, that's the hardest thing for most of us to do in this fast-paced and high-pressure society is just to slow down. Look at the passage. Read it now once, twice. Read it three times. Take a short passage and just kind of slowly digest it. Uh, chew on it like a cow chews its cud. Work it through uh, one, two, three times, and that helps me to just kind of meditate on it and, and think it through and let it kind of percolate down into my heart. And number three, search. I search a passage uh, by jotting down the answer to a series of questions, and this is really easy to understand. And what I've discovered is real, that's really helpful for me is what's called the SPACE method, S-P-A-C-E. And I, this is free of charge. It's worth the, the price of admission this morning. But basically, in seeking to apply what God has to say, I'm going to ask five questions of that passage, whatever I'm looking at. Number one, S for space. Are there any sins for me to confess? Is there anything in here that exposes me? Maybe a passage is exposing a wrong attitude or an action in my heart and life, and I just need to come clean. Is there any sin here I need to confess? For example, if I'm reading through the book of Jonah, and I realize what a bigot this guy was, what a racist. He hated the Assyrians with a passion. He wanted 100,000 men, women, and children to basically go to hell. He hated them. And I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking, oh, this guy, wow, what a piece of work. But then I have to stop and say, wait, are there any sins I need to confess? Is there any residue of racism in me? Is there any intolerance I need to deal with? And so when I look at any kind of passage, the first question I ask is, are there any sins for me to confess? Secondly, are there any promises for me to claim? 
Maybe I have some past sin that I've struggled with. I, I committed, but I really haven't dealt with the guilt and the shame of that, and I'm still struggling with that. And then suddenly I come across a passage like Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I suddenly realize, thank you, Lord, there's a promise here. I'm free, I'm clean, because of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ my Lord. And so there's a promise that I'm going to claim. And I walk away free of the shame and the guilt of my sin. A third question I ask, are there any actions for me to avoid? Anything in this passage I'm reading that I need to avoid? Maybe I'm, I'm studying David's adultery with Bathsheba and how it started with a wandering eye and a lustful heart. And I'm looking at his life and I'm going, David, oh man. But then I have to stop and say, wait a minute, is there any action here I need to avoid? And I may need to stop right then and there and say, God, basically help me to avoid anything that would, that would cause me to lust or to fall into the same kind of trap that David did. Is there any action that David did that I need to avoid? Fourthly, is there any commandment for me to obey? Basically, if I'm studying Ephesians 4.26, and it says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let 24 hours go by. I may need to stop and say, this is a command. Is there any residue of anger in me today that I don't want to go to bed with? Otherwise, I'll be up all night. I'll be thinking about it at 3 in the morning, and I need to let that go now. Is there any command in this passage that I need to obey? And then finally, is there any example for me to follow? If I'm studying the life and times of Elijah, I may ask God to help me like Elijah to stop and to listen and, and, and not to be afraid to hear God's voice and not to run from my enemies like we all have a tendency to do. You know, God's word is such an amazing gift to us. It really is. It's the one book we need. It's a book that gives us hope. It's a book that gives us direction. It's a book that basically sees us safely, safely home. Let me just encourage you as we study uh, the Bible together this year, as we go through book by book, let me encourage you to come alongside and, and do the reading plan and begin to read a couple of chapters a day. And let's see together if we can't, uh, as a family, go through God's word, not for the purpose of just building up head knowledge, but that we might apply it and become more and more transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this book. And our desire, Father, is to be people of the book. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might be sponges that soak up the truth of your word on a daily basis as food to our soul, as light to the darkness of our hearts and minds sometimes. And Father, as, the, as a source of our hope and the source of our joy, the source of our peace, the source of, Lord, uh, the, the purpose that you have us here on this earth for in the short time that we have. And, Father, we want to make the most of every opportunity. And so may the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer.